enjoy Tornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. On today's podcast, I'm joined by senior ballistician Jaden Quinlan, and we're going to get into external ballistics part two. Now, in the first episode, we covered some general high-level topics about the exterior influences on a bullet. On today's podcast, we're going to go over those same influences, but take a deeper dive into how they work. Hornady is always growing, and right now, there's some construction going on. So if you're able to hear some small jackhammering noises, we apologize for that. It should be very minimal, if at all perceivable, uh, but just wanted to let you know about that. If you like the podcast, if you have suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can drop a comment or hit us up at podcast at hornady.com. We put a lot of work into this show. We hope you enjoy it. If you like it, subscribe, share it, leave a comment. We sure appreciate it. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Hornady Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Swerzik, and I'm joined across the table today by senior ballistician Jaden Quinlan. Jaden, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. We've been really beating you up here on the podcast as of lately with this whole ballistics study, and I think the feedback that I'm getting so far has been really, really good. So we appreciate it. Good. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. I love talking about this stuff. Um, it's, it's my passion. So getting to getting the opportunity to convey that to somebody that wants to learn it. Hey, that's, that's great. I enjoy every minute of it. Yeah. Well, that's true. We've, we've both been that, uh, that baby bird, just looking for more information, uh, at one point in our career and, and still today, you know, so <laughs> absolutely it's, nothing's changed. <laughs> it, it, no, nothing's changed except for now you get to be mama bird for a lot of people. Uh, and sometimes. A lot of cool information. So in the last episode, we, we went over some external ballistics and more specifically not using a calculator or like trajectory stuff, but what are the exterior forces that are acting on the bullet mm -hmm. as it travels downrange? And we hit that pretty in depth. I mean, it was, it was complex. I've listened to that episode twice and uh, obviously, you know, taken more away from it every time I listen, but that was kind of at a higher level. Mm -hmm. and that's good. It laid down a bunch of good groundwork, but there's more to the story. There is more to the story by a lot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we can't get into the absolute textbook definition, nitty gritties of all this stuff, but there are some extra levels that I know you want to go over. Uh, so for that user, that's more of an advanced user. This will hit on some of those questions you might have. And then for anybody that's listened to the previous external ballistics podcast, this is just going to take that foundational knowledge and now refine it and just add a couple more things to it uh, that do make it more complex, but you want them to understand how things are actually working. Yes. Yep. I Great. agree. So we talked to this last podcast. You need to check it out if you're listening to this one and you haven't yet. This will make very little much sense to you. So go back and listen to this first one. But we covered gyroscopic stability. We covered initialization jump or aerodynamic jump, uh, center of pressure versus the center of gravity relationship, wind deflection. Uh, what else? Uh, I think spin that was, drift. Yeah, spin drift. Yeah, it was kind of gyro, spin drift, aerodynamic jump, a little bit of wind there at the end, mm -hmm. and I think I was kind of running out of mental steam. Um, That'll happen. Yeah, definitely made a couple slip ups, which I'm going to correct today. Um, but in 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 essence, it did a pretty good job of painting the picture of the bullet when it came out of the muzzle to around the target. I think there at the end we even got into transonic. We did. instability just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so it did paint a pretty good picture. But like you said, some of the feedback we've received and some of the 
Some of the analogies that I have available, I did not necessarily use on that one, and I think we need to. I think okay. that will help a lot. Um, yeah, just to break it down to a little more of a fundamental standpoint from an analogy perspective, which again, like you caveated on that first podcast, may not be the exact physical representation of what's happening, but it really breaks things down to a much more understandable level mm-hmm. so that you can see the cause and effect relationship. Yeah, and I'll be doing that again today. We'll be using analogies that aren't necessarily 100% truth, but they're true enough that they convey the they convey the topic in a way that you can understand it and apply it. Awesome. So, um, well, before we go, though, do you want to mention that the listeners might hear some jackhammering in the background? Yeah, in uh, yeah, as uh, as it goes, Hornady is is always growing. We're always doing uh, stuff to increase capacity and and whatnot. And so, if you do hear some jackhammering in the background, we're doing some construction. So bear with us. It should be pretty quiet, almost imperceivably quiet. But just in case, uh, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Okay, so let's start out with uh, gyroscopic stability again. I know we covered that <clears throat> pretty well in depth on the last one, but mm-hmm. but we didn't really cover what does that mean? Like, oh, that's cool that you can describe what gyroscopic stability is and how it works, but what does it mean to me as the as the shooter or the reloader or or whatever it is, you know, however you're going to apply the product. Um but before I do before I do get to that point, um I think I might have had a slip up on the last podcast in uh so we were talking about the center of gravity and the center of pressure and the relationship between those two is that kind of pry bar length, if you remember that. Right. Uh, and the oncoming airflow from the bullet moving forward. We were we were talking about the bullet being static and the bullet or the air moving over the top of the bullet. Uh, we we talked about that being the arm that's on the end of the pry bar and pushing on it. <clears throat> and I think I might have misspoke. I don't know. We'll 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 have to review this one and then that one. But uh, <laughs> but from a an air density perspective, that has a big influence on where that center of pressure is, but it also interacts with the the velocity. It kind of gives the velocity a, a strength boost or, or a weakness, you could think of it as. Because of that oncoming airflow, how dense that air is kind of dictates how strong, you know, if it was a fixed velocity, how strong that velocity is going to be at trying to tip the bullet over. So, okay. so when the air density is higher, uh, you're going to see that in colder temperatures. That causes air density to go higher. Um, and uh, so more density, not, not, don't think of it from pressure, you know, higher, higher pressure or it's density. Um, so colder temperatures make it more dense. And then um, the lower you are from an elevation standpoint, the more dense the air will be. And that's because the atmospheric pressure is greater at lower elevations. Uh, it's because you have the atmosphere sitting on top of you. That's yeah. what's causing it, that pressure. It has mass. It, yeah, that mm-hmm. mass is. Yeah, and it's sitting on you. It's like mm-hmm. being in the bottom of a swimming pool. There's more pressure on you than when you're floating at the surface. Kind of same thing in the Earth's atmosphere. So, um, now the the important part about the gyro is that if a bullet is gyroscopically stable when it comes out of the muzzle, we talked about the fact that it's at its most gyroscopically unstable point there, and that's because the velocity is the highest. So okay. the strength of the arm is uh, is the strongest, trying to tip the bullet over. Because the center of pressure doesn't naturally want to be in front of the center of gravity. Uh, that's why we spin the bullet. It gives it a stability axis, uh, just like the gyroscope, the child's top example we used last time. And so that's what keeps the bullet point forward. Um, if the gyroscopic stability is is low enough, and there's the, there's a gyroscopic stability factor, the shorthand is called SG. So if you see that, you know, like on our ballistics calculator, like the Ford off, it'll spit out a gyro number. That's an SG number. Okay. That SG number has to be above 1.0 uh, at the muzzle for the bullet to be stable. 
And if you get on Fordoff and you and you run a trajectory calculation, especially on the website, the gyros are going to be there. We we fixed it so that you have to see the gyros. Um, on the phone app, you know, it's just showing you your come up and your windage, so you might not see it. Uh, but if you go to the table view down on the bottom right, there's that little red icon. You go in there and you scroll to the right, you can find the gyro information there. But okay. gyro is important because it tells us if our bullet is is flying point forward or not. Now, there's a misconception out there that when a bullet goes unstable that it just tumbles and tumbles and tumbles as it goes through the air. Right. But if you think about it for a second, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, there's no there's no momentum for the bullet to continually tumble. You know, there's nothing spinning the bullet causing it to continue to do that. So what actually happens is the bullet will pick up an extremely high angle of yaw because that oncoming velocity is stronger than its resistance than the 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 gyroscopic resistance to it, right? And so what happens is that bullet picks up a really high amount of yaw and if it's if it does go fully unstable, it'll flip over backwards and it'll just fly backwards. And wow. as, as it's doing that, the, the, the back end of the bullet, which is now the ogive, right? Because it's flying in reverse. Yeah. It's kind of just wobbling around all over the place. But when you do that, that that's the, the statically stable state of a bullet is because in that circumstance, the center of pressure is behind the center of gravity and it'll just kind of stay that way and fly like that. And so when you hear uh, like a ricochet or something like that and you kind of get that whoop, 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 whoop sound, um, that's not the bullet continually going end over end over end over end that's making that sound. The bullet's gone end over end once and then it's just kind of flopping around backwards as it's going through the air. So that that's kind of a misconception that a lot of people think. They think it just goes goes crazy and end over end forever, but technically it, it can't do that. Um, so, so gyro is really important for that, right? You don't want to shoot a bullet that does that because yeah. your, your accuracy, your dispersion is just going to go out the window. You just will be throwing a rock. Absolutely. Absolutely. But right before that happens, there's this little sweet spot right before a bullet goes gyroscopically unstable. Let's say, so we we're talking about the SG or the gyro, uh, number 1.0 is gyroscopically stable. Anything above that is stable. Anything below 1.0 is unstable gyroscopically. There's a little sweet spot between 1.0 and 1.1-ish, maybe up to 1.2, where as you start to approach those levels, you're approaching 1.0 and you you hit the threshold of 1.1, a lot of times what you'll see is your group sizes will start to open up. And the closer you get to 1.0, the worse it gets. Okay. And so we, we do this testing a lot where we'll especially when we're concerned about publishing a twist rate on a bullet. Because if you're a customer of ours and you're a reloader or a hand loader and you purchase a bullet off the shelf, if it's a pretty slippery design bullet, very aerodynamic, uh, it's important that you that you shoot that bullet out of the correct twist rate. So a lot sure. of times we'll publish that on the box. Yeah. If it's a general purpose bullet that's super forgiving from a twist rate and gyroscopic stability perspective, sometimes we won't even put the number on the box because it, you know, be one and 18 for a 22 cal bullet or something i mean it's not even applicable nobody makes a barrel you know that's slower than that you don't have to worry about it but in those examples where you do where pre-existing cartridges or common barrels available are available in a twist rate that's slower than this bullet needs to stabilize we will publish that number so with those type of bullets what we'll do is we will test those as we approach that 1.0 gyro that that line of instability and mm-hmm. what you see is before they go completely unstable group sizes get worse and worse and worse and worse up until the point where they go unstable and that's something that users could could look for you know sure um and and really the only way to know that gyro number is is to run Ford off we talked a little bit about the green hill and the miller stability formulas last time they'll give you a gyro number as well 
Um, again, take them with a grain of salt. You know, I would expect uh, all bullet designs considered from super aerodynamic lead core match bullets to super aerodynamic uh, monolithic style like the CX bullets mm -hmm. to short stumpy pistol bullets. You know, there's a lot of variance in, in projectile design out there. Um, across all of that, I would say your average error on the Miller um, stability formula, which is probably the most common one out there, is 20%, Wow, maybe. So what that means is if you were off by 20%, your gyro could technically be 1.0 and you get a Miller stability output of 1.2. Well, when you see that 1.2, you think, hey, I'm golden. You know, yeah. I'm way away from that 1.0. And, and Jaden said he's seen that that at 1.1-ish area, you know, group sizes start to open up. Well, I'm nowhere close to that. I'm all the way over here at 1.2. Everything should be great. The problem is, is that that calculation method isn't how it works, as we discussed in the last podcast. Right. It's way more complex. So if you're, if you're going to... Uh, to really get a good gyroscopic stability number, use Ford off to get that. It's actually executing the equations of motion and the actual stability equation to give you a good yeah. number. On the exact physical model of your individual and specific bullet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, not as generalized. And I was going to bring that up because I remember, you know, back in the day uh, using the Miller stability formula and the rule of thumb was always 1.4 mm. just to give yourself some, some buffer. Some, yeah. Uh, and now knowing as you explained it, why you even needed that buffer, how that even got popular. Right. So what you could have happen is you run the Miller formula and you say, yeah, this bullet should be just fine. I got a, I have a factory 243 rifle and I want to shoot, uh, you know, a 103 ELDX, which is too slow for a lot of environments, uh, using that factory 243 and, uh, which is a nine twist. And you, you decide, well, I'm, I'm at Wyoming. Uh, I'm, I'm in Wyoming. My, my elevation's really high. I'm going to shoot prairie dogs with this bullet in the summertime. The temperatures are high. That means the air density is really low and that helps your gyro, right? The bullet's okay. more stable because the, the velocity tipping the bullet over is weaker because the air is less thick. You can think of it as. Well, in that case, you run the Miller and you say, yeah, I can, I can get away with this. I'm good. And then you buy these bullets and you go shoot them and you go, oh, no, either your group sizes are horrendous or you have bullets that are going through your, you know, your hundred yard target sideways. So that gyro is important from an application standpoint. A, it's important to understand where it comes from, what it means, kind of what we discussed in the last podcast, mm -hmm. and also the different methods out there to, to generate that number and what the limitations of those are, because you can't assume they're all the same. Um, so that, that's an important aspect. Um, now to, to back up, kind of back into the, how it works a little bit, <clears throat> We talked about how when that bullet comes out of the muzzle, it's at its most unstable point gyroscopically. Well, as it continues to go down range, it loses velocity, right? So that was the strength of the arm on the end of the pry bar trying to tip the bullet over. The strength right. of that arm is getting weaker, okay. even though the pry bar is getting longer, because as you lose velocity, center of pressure moves forward away from the center of gravity, making that pry bar length longer. But because it's getting, uh, the velocity arm is getting weaker, um, the bullet gains stability. The reason it gains stability, it becomes more gyroscopically stable, is because the spin of the bullet, the, the rotational velocity of it, does not degrade very quickly. So a bullet, a common, a common bullet, let's say, would come out at 250,000 RPMs. That's probably a good average number, somewhere between 200 and 250,000. So that thing's spinning really, really fast, fast, you know? Yeah. Um, so out of the muzzle, it's got 250,000 RPMs and at a thousand yards downrange, it might have 232,000 RPMs. So it didn't lose much, right? It no. traveled a long distance and really didn't lose much spin. And that's because from, from a, 
you know, you'd have to have resistance to slow that down, right? Well, you have rifling marks along the bearing surface of the bullet that some people have described as like these little paddle wheel type things. And you could think of it that way. Yep. Um, the reason that the, the rifling marks don't slow down the spin of the bullet very much is because there's a boundary layer of air that, that kind of encompasses that. And, and that's why you don't get it slowing, the, the spin rate slowing down very fast. So the bullet gets way more gyroscopically stable as it goes down range because it's losing velocity as it goes down range because of drag. But the spin rate isn't, isn't slowing down nearly as quickly as the velocity is lost. That's why Got it gets it. more stable. Now, that means a couple of things. Um, one leads into spin drift, which I think we can delve in or dive into that a little bit more detail here in a second. But the other is uh, terminal performance, which I think is going to be probably another podcast on its own. Completely like dive like this. Oh, but, 100%. Because there's so many things going on with terminal performance. Well, and it'll be at the end of our ballistic study. We'll do, you know, from internal, external, you know, we can talk about forward off and, and ballistic calculators and, and BCs. Mm. And then we should absolutely finish up on how bullets actually work. Okay. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll touch on. Well, when we, when we get there, um, there's some things happening in this external phase that affects what, uh, what occurs in that terminal Interesting. phase. And one of them is this gyro number. And so, you know, that we, we talked about how the gyro is affected by the spin. Well, there's, there's two ways this affects it. One is the, is the gyroscopic stability itself. So if you're shooting a bullet that doesn't have a traditional expansion mechanism. So a lead tip on a spire point, okay. a polymer tip on an ELDX, something that causes the bullet to expand, which we'll expound on in that other podcast, how that works. But if you're shooting an FMJ or a Bowtail hollow point or something like that, those bullets aren't designed to expand. And the way that they transfer energy into a target is by yawing or tumbling in the target medium. Okay, they hit the media and then they... They flip over sideways. Yep. That sideways profile of the bullet flying forward as it flips has more surface area. It transmits more energy into the target. So the problem with those is that the terminal performance is directly tied to gyro. If you think of the terminal media and the air as the same thing, something the bullet is flying through, the more gyroscopically stable the bullet is, the less tendency it has to tip over, right? Well, it's okay. the same thing for terminal performance. And so the fact that a bullet gets more gyroscopically stable as it flies down range means that it's going to be harder and harder to get that bullet to upset or yaw from a terminal performance perspective once it hits target medium. Mm -hmm. So what will happen, we see this a lot of times, is <clears throat> somebody will do a terminal ballistic study or a company will put out you know, uh, marketing material on how their bullet performs. 600-yard impacts. And what they do is they download the velocity to what the velocity would be on a 600 yard impact. Yeah. The problem is when you do that and you download the velocity, you're also download you're also downgrading how fast the bullet's spinning yeah. if you shoot it out of the same right. applicable twist rate barrel. So what happens there is when they do this simulated 600 yard test at say 20 yards, 50 yards, 100 yards even, uh, you're getting bullet performance that is not the same thing as when you actually shoot it in the real world because your bullet is way less gyroscopically stable when you just download the velocity and shoot it out of the same barrel mm -hmm. as it is when you shoot a full house load, let it transition those 600 yards, lose all that velocity, and then impact the meat. And so that's an important thing to consider, that, that your gyroscopic stability is going to play into the twist rate. Now, when it comes to a traditional expanding style bullet, like that spire point with the lead cap or yep. the... ELDX with, with the polymer tip, the faster you spin those bullets, the faster they will expand. And the, the analogy here is, is kind of like, uh, 
the merry-go-round when you're a kid. So if you sit on the on right on the edge of that merry-go-round and it spins, you know, you start out spinning pretty slow and you don't even have to hold on to the bars. You can just sit there, you know, and, and be be okay. But then that kid shows up to the playground yeah. that, that always takes it a little bit too far. And he comes and he starts spinning you faster and faster and faster. And next thing you know, you're grabbing the bars to hold on. And if he takes it far enough, you might get flung off the thing even holding on, right? Yep. Been there. Bullets the same way when it expands. So the faster that bullet is spinning, when it hits terminal media and starts to mushroom out and expand, the faster it's spinning, the faster it will open up. Because essentially that jacket material and, and the lead is trying to fling itself, just like you are on the merry-go-round, it's trying to fling itself off the bullet so it opens really rapidly. Okay. So, so that said, your twist rate of your barrel, which is what's influencing the gyro, right, mm -hmm. its resistance to, to tipping over, plays in other areas as well. Yeah, not so, just in bullet stability. Mm -hmm. That's that's important to know. So I, I said it affects spin drift and terminal. We just touched the terminal part. Now let's maybe lead into the spin drift part. Yeah. So when we talked about spin drift last time, um, I talked about how the bullet nose points to the right. Okay. The bullet nose, this would be a right, for a right hand spinning barrel. Um, the bullet nose does point to the right and it, it points to the right because uh, as the bullet is starting to fall due to gravity, its nose isn't perfectly nosing over. That creates a little bit more pressure. You could think of it as on the bottom of the bullet than the top. We talked about the gyroscope responding 90 degrees upstream causes yep. its nose to point to the right. Okay. At the point that that happens, there's a normal force that's generated. And, and if you're not familiar with normal force, you can look it up. Essentially, normal force acts perpendicular to the, the force being applied. And so what happens is as that bullet nose points to the right slightly, the normal force is in the direction to the right. And that's why spin drift is called a drift. Because it's a force-driven thing. Oh. Okay. Okay. So spin drift causes the bullet to go to the right, and that's caused by normal force itself. I think I might have uh, miscommunicated that a touch on the last podcast, uh, um, talking about drag, which we're going to get to in a second, because drag is where wind wind deflection shows up. But the faster twist rate, the faster your twist rate of your barrel, the higher gyroscopic stability number you have the less tendency the bullet has to get tipped over by anything, right? Well, that includes its its nose wanting to follow that ever-arcing trajectory. Okay. So the faster you spin the bullet, the less it wants to nose over and follow the trajectory. And small little differences there mean that the more the bullet is pointed up as it's falling down, the more the pressure differential is. The, the more, more the, the nose goes to the right, the more the normal force causes it to drift to the right. Wow. And so... You know, spin drift really isn't a big concern for us because A, it's always there. B, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and C, it's kind of a small thing to worry about, right? When you look at spin drift numbers, you're talking in a matter of inches at a thousand yards for most yeah. applicable examples. So that's pretty small compared to wind deflection, which can be definitely feet oh, or yeah, yards or many, <laughs> yeah, 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 yards. And spin drift, like you said, even. Uh, at a thousand yards with a six five or something, you're talking a couple tenths of a mil. Mm -hmm. So it's really relatively small in the grand scheme of things. And it's I mean, especially with Ford off, it's really predictable. Mm -hmm. And it's consistent shot to shot. Yeah. Right. You don't have to worry about spin drift changing on you really. But what you do have to be concerned with is if you go to a dramatically faster or a dramatically slower twist barrel, your spin drift values will change. So if you are accounting for spin drift and you're saying, okay, it's a two tenths of a mil at a thousand your system and your setup and then you assume that spin drift is just this constant thing that happens to all bullets and you go to a completely different system and start shooting it well spin drift out of that thing might be three or four tenths it might be more or less you know so 
your twist rate though is your your twist rate is going to be a driver in that. So just keep that in mind if you're going to start switching up twist rates. It okay. does have an effect on spin drift. Okay, you want to go into wind? It yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is the like you said the the means for the most misses. I forget how you put that, but it's a uh, yeah. The mechanism of failure yeah. or the or the highest High. mechanism <laughs> of failure. So we should probably spend the most time on it and uh I know this gets pretty deep pretty quick because there's a lot going on but again uh it's important to have a a really well-rounded understanding of how it works rather than just yeah you know plugging numbers into a calculator and saying okay hold half a mil or whatever it's important to know what's going on i think yeah uh to help you know what you're up against right and we we touched a little bit about what's going on before we're going to go deeper into it because the question that really matters is where does the wind matter the most? We know that wind matters, but is there a place it matters more or not? Because if there is, then we can pay more attention to that area and be more successful. The answer to the question, is there wind importance in certain areas and not others, is absolutely yes. But before we can get to why and understanding that answer, we have to cover this other stuff first, which is a, a deeper dive into how wind deflection occurs. Okay, well, I'm going to go sharpen a pencil, get a notepad here. <laughs> Ready so, to dig in. So we talked last time, we covered a little bit that that when when the the bullet encounters a crosswind, and for this example, we're just gonna talk about a, a full value crosswind from coming from right, from ninety degrees, 90 degrees. right to left. Okay. We talked about how the bullet nose gets really unhappy, right? It wakes up a bunch uh, when it hits a crosswind and, and that's a function of the crosswind speed. The more speed there is it like exponentially gets angry, the tip of the bullet does. Um but what we, I think, really need to dive into with some analogies to help people understand is what the bullet is doing, why it's nosing into the wind. So I'm going to use, I'm going to use some technical terms and then some analogies uh, that will hopefully portray that. So first, we need to, to understand this, we need to talk about lag time. Okay, so, which we didn't touch on last time. We did not, but so it's this, really important. Yeah, I was going to say, this just takes it to that next level. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, bullet deflection due to a crosswind is proportional to lag time. So that means it trends with lag time. As lag time goes this way, wind deflection magnitude goes the same direction, right? Up or down, you could think of it as more or less. So uh, lag time is kind of a cool thing. So back in uh, the 1850s, 1860s, there was a French ballistician named Dedion, I believe is how you pronounce it. He figured out lag time. So this is a long time ago. Long yeah, time ago. This is kind of a throwback to our kind of first podcast with the history yeah. of ballistics, you know? So, uh, so this is, that's really cool. Um, what he figured out was, uh, that the, the wind deflection was proportional to lag time. Well, what is lag time? Well, lag time is the difference in time of flight. So what's time of flight? Let's cover that first. So time of flight is how long does it take your bullet to get to the target? And in seconds is what it's measured. In. So that's okay. pretty easy to yeah. understand. And Ford off will calculate that for you. Yep. Sure. will. so, uh, lag time is the difference in time of flight between your bullet flying through the atmosphere that it's going through and your bullet in a vacuum. Well, what does that mean? Well, if your bullet's in a vacuum, there's no aerodynamic drag on it. So if your bullet comes out of the muzzle at 3,000 feet per second in a vacuum, it's going to go 3,000 feet per second forever because there's nothing to slow it down. Aerodynamic drag is what slows the bullet down. There's none of that in a vacuum because there's no air, right, to give it resistance. Got it. And so if it comes out at 3,000 feet per second, 
or a thousand yards a second. You could think of it as three thousand feet yeah. divided by three that converts it to yards. So it's going a thousand yards a second. How long is it going to take it to go a thousand yards? A second, right? That that's how those numbers work. So, so the difference between uh, the time of flight of let's say three thousand feet per second because it was an easy number, yeah, and a thousand yards. In that example, the bullet would get there in one second. But when we shoot it in our atmosphere that has air in it and resistance and drag due to that, yep. it might be 1.5 seconds for our bullet to get to 1,000 yards. So that half-second difference between 1.5 seconds and 1 second, that half-second is lag time. Got it. So the wind deflection is proportional to lag time. Sure. Well, that's cool. Um, but what does that mean? So I'm going to use, we're going to go away from bullets for a second. We're going to go to rockets. Because rockets are easier to see, right? Like you can watch a rocket as it's launched. Yep. Bullets, not so much. No. Um, so if you've ever seen a rocket launch, especially in wind, this hopefully is a useful analogy. If you haven't, get on the internet um, and yeah. find a video. They're out there. Right? Okay. Roger that. When a rocket launches and there's wind present, what does the rocket do? First, it's accelerating, right? Because it's starting at zero and you're burning some sort of propulsion and it's accelerating. It's going faster and faster and faster as it comes off the ground. Well, if the wind is coming from, from you to me uh, and the rocket's being launched here, what you'll see in those videos, if you look at them, is when the rocket comes off the ground, it points itself into the wind. Yeah, it noses into the wind mm -hmm. and its back end goes away from the wind. That's right. And it doesn't do that because the wind is pushing on it and doing that. It's doing that because it's going to travel wherever the relative velocity is. I'm going to get into that here in a second. But yeah. if you watch these videos of a rocket launching in wind, you'll see that the rocket noses into the wind and as it is accelerating, as it's going faster and faster and faster, it just accelerates and climbs and takes a path right into the wind. And you can watch the smoke trail off whatever it's burning and you'll, that'll tell you the wind direction. And what you see is the rocket goes away from where the wind ends up pushing the, the smoke or exhaust from the rocket. Okay. Well, that's kind of interesting because if you think about that from the perspective of a bullet, that's like negative wind deflection, right? Yeah, right. So, so like if we're, we're looking at a rocket launch here, it's sitting right in front of us and the wind is coming right to left and this rocket comes up off the ground and it points itself to the right and because it's accelerating, it just goes to the right. It accelerates to the right. Well, that would be the opposite of the wind deflection we observe with a bullet, right? Well, a bullet has the opposite acceleration characteristics. A bullet isn't accelerating. A bullet's negatively accelerating, yeah, technically. Decelerating, yeah. Negatively accelerating. Yeah. The rocket is gaining velocity. It's going faster and faster and faster. The bullet is constantly losing velocity. Okay. And what do you see? The opposite effect happens, right? Instead of the rocket, which went into the wind, the bullet goes away from the wind. So... <clears throat> get a drink of water here before we we're going to talk about water so <laughs> okay so hopefully that paints a picture that people can understand a little bit because you can go see the rocket that's yeah. helpful all right now we're going to use an analogy that is kind of this we're talking about the same thing still but we're going to use a different analogy to be able to portray the things that we can't see very well okay so what we're going to do is we have a body of water let's say a river and it's uh 20 yards across this river just just throw a number out and right now the river the 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 water in the river is wind okay okay 
right now the the water in the river isn't moving. That doesn't make it much of a river, I guess. Yeah. Um, but in, in this first example, the water in the river is not moving. And our job is to take, let's say, a kayak, which is kind of shaped like a bullet, right? Kind of similar. Yeah. We're going to take a kayak, and we're going to try to get from one side of the river to the other. Got it. <clears throat> There's three different kayaks we have. One kayak has a motor on it, and it's a heck of a motor. Like, mm. it gets going. It accelerates quickly. Okay? okay. That's kayak number one. That's the rocket. Kayak number two has a motor on it that is tuned so that it matches the speed of the of the river when the river starts moving. It's a perfect match to that speed of the river. Okay. Yeah. That's the no lag time rocket. Or what's called a um, an auto an automet. So there's types of I'll divulge into this for a second and then we'll come back. There's a type of rocket called an automet. An automet stands for Automatic meteorological or meteorological compensation, I believe. It's an acronym kind okay. of thing. Essentially what it means is, is that in that rocket, it can adjust itself so that it never has lag time. So, so it never matches. slows down and it never speeds up. It just it maintains with whatever whatever environment it's flying through, it maintains a constant speed. It's that vacuum bullet that Got yeah. to a thousand yards in a second because okay. it never slowed down, never gained or lost velocity. What that means is there's no wind deflection. Well, the rocket, that's a big deal. You know, if you launch a rocket and you're trying to hit a target, you know, miles and miles and miles away, if it has effects of wind, you got to be compensating for that. Well, how do you know what the wind is 20 miles up in the air? You can simulate it, but you don't necessarily know. So, right. so these automet systems are self-correcting based on what the rocket is encountering at that time to make sure it has no lag time. That's pretty okay. pretty awesome. So back to our kayaks. So that f that first kayak was the regular rocket. It just it's got a motor on it that's just all oh. acceleration, constantly gaining speed. The middle kayak uh, has a motor on it that is custom tuned to sense the speed of the water, and it it uh, matches that. Okay, so there's no there's no lag. The last kayak has nothing on it, no motor. We're just gonna push it by hand. Okay, okay. that's a bullet. That's what happened when you push a bullet out of a gun. Once it leaves, it's gone. You're not propelling it anymore, right? No, yeah, you get no control over it. It's it's, yep. it's launched. So back to our river. We have this 20-yard wide river, and we're going to try to get these kayaks across it. Now, the river is wind, okay? So we're, we're going to push the kayaks perpendicular straight across the river from one bank to the other. We're not going to do angles or nothing. Now, <clears throat> if we take our bullet kayak, the one with no motor on it, and we put it in the water, and we just simply push it across. There's no current in the water at all. That kayak's going to just float straight across to the other side of the river. It's going to slow down a little bit because there's drag in that water, yep. right? Um, but it will go straight and, and hit the other side of the bank exactly perpendicular from where we launched it if we pushed it perpendicular. That's what happens when you fire a bullet and there's no wind. Do you have to compensate left and right outside of spindrift that we talked yeah. about? No, right? No. You hold, hold straight away. You've heard that wind call. Yeah. Right? That's that example. There's no movement in the river. There's no wind coming across. All right, now let's, uh, let's give it some current in this river. So now the river is actually flowing. <clears throat> if we take our, our uh, kayak that has no motor on it, our bullet kayak, and we push it out into that river, what that kayak will do is it'll go out and it'll turn itself to align itself into the, the oncoming flow of the water somewhat. Mm -hmm. not, not fully, 
but somewhat. And you can probably see this in videos too, or go do it yourself. Yeah. You know, like go out to a stream or something and take a, I don't know, your kid's little toy boat or something and, and do this. And what you'll see is that it will align itself somewhat into the oncoming current of the water, but not fully. And that's because you also pushed it straight across, right? So it has a velocity vector straight across to the other bank. The oncoming water flow is another velocity vector. And so what it does is it finds a happy point between the two. Okay. Now, we have to start to get into bullet drag a little bit. So bullet drag is, is the resistance due to the air. And bullet drag, drag works in the opposite direction of the velocity vector. So a vector is a direction and a magnitude. When we shoot a bullet, our velocity vector is, is straight down range, right? That's why you can hold straight away and hit the target at 1,000 yards with no wind. When that wind shows up, just like the kayak in the river, the kayak in the river oriented itself upstream a little bit. The bullet orients itself upstream a little bit into the crosswind that's mm -hmm. coming. You've now changed the drag vector because the bullet isn't aligned perfectly with where it's going. It's going a little bit sideways. Well, we said that drag works in the opposite direction of the velocity vector. The velocity vector is no longer straightly aligned with the trajectory that it's following. It's now pointed to the right. So which way is drag going to be? Is it going to be straight behind it? Mm. No, it's no. going to be a little bit to the left yep. because the bullet nose went to the right. So the, so the drag is to the, the left. Okay. That's where wind deflection comes from, is that drag. Now let's go, let's go back to our river again and finish up with our two other kayaks. So we have current in the river. We launch our, we launch our kayak with no motor on it. We push it as hard as we can. It goes out away from us because of that force. It also tips a little bit right into the current. And what's going to happen to that kayak in current? It's going to drift down current before it finally hits the other bank. Right. right? And so our kayak is going to hit to the left of where we intended it to. Now we take the kayak that has the custom-tuned motor that will match the speed of the water. Okay. And what we do there is we take that kayak, we push it out, it goes out straight, and then it orients itself to the right into the oncoming current, same way the first kayak did, but it's got a motor now. It senses how fast the current of the water is, and it kicks that motor up to match it. That kayak will go completely straight across the river and hit exactly where it did when there was no wind, when there was no current. But the nose will be pointed the nose into be, the yep, direction. Yep, it has to. Coming. It has to. It has to find that point of equilibrium. Now, the third kayak, the super souped-up motor kayak, we launch it, and it just accelerates. So if it is accelerating, it's moving faster and faster and faster. As soon as it orients itself into that current a little bit, which direction is it going to go? Upstream, right? Because it's overcoming any drag that's there by acceleration. It says, I don't care about drag. I'm just going. So once its nose points upstream, which it has to do, then it's going to accelerate upstream. That kayak is going to hit to the right. Oh. Of, of where our kayaks hit when there was no wind. Does does that analogy oh, kind of help yeah. a little bit? That painted a, a beautiful picture okay. of a nice river, some trees, maybe mountains <laughs> in the background. It's really nice. <laughs> Trout, you know, swimming around. So, so with that said, the reason that wind deflection occurs is because you created a change. The, the, or the, you didn't do it, but the wind did. The wind caused the bullet to to orient into the wind a little bit. That changed the, the relative, due to the relative velocity change. You have all that oncoming velocity, which is the bullet traveling forward 3,000 feet a second. Then you have a 10 mile an hour crosswind coming in at 14.7 feet per second. 
It's going to find whatever the relative angle is that makes those two equal each other out, 14.7 versus 3,000. That's the angle it finds. Now, when it finds that angle, it's flying at a little bit of an angle. Drag works in the opposite direction of the velocity vector it's pointed on. Well, the vector it's pointed on is to the right because of that crosswind. So if drag is the opposite of that, exactly like you said, that means drag is back and to the left. And that's why a right-hand crosswind causes a left-direction deflection and the opposite for a left-to-right crosswind. That's that's pretty heavy, man. Yeah, so yeah. we didn't get that deep on the last one because I think we... I think going through the lag time and all that would have been too much at that point in time. Oh, 100%. But we have to understand that to answer the question, where is the wind most important? Right. So do you have any questions on that part before we go to where the wind is most important? Uh, can I go resharpen my pencil and take more <laughs> notes? <laughs> no, yeah. honestly, I know I made some jokes about a beautiful mountain scene and having trout swimming in the stream and stuff. But uh, no, that was, that was really well laid out, especially, you know, you talked about the rocket. It aligns with the wind. Well, so everything aligns with the wind. Mm -hmm. But then if it's accelerating and it's it can go overcome wind. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then then as you laid it out where the bullet kayak aligns with the wind, uh, but now it's drifting. Uh it's it's going it's, with the current. You yeah. Could think of it as that's that's not what's happening with the bullet. It's not going with the current. Right. So that's it's not being, a true example yeah, there. But it's it's true deflected. enough to convey it. Yeah. Again, what's happening with the bullet is drag, and and that's because because the bullet's oriented right. The drag is now to the left a little bit, not yep. just straight behind. Wow, that's why. So, okay, so with that covered, now we can answer where is the wind most important. So, there's a lot of people with answers to this question out there. Sure, some of them will say the wind is most important at the target because that's where the bullet's going the slowest. And that would be a true statement if the wind push, physically pushed the bullet off course. Well, we know that's not what's happening. We've gone through these yeah. examples and talked yeah. about how it works and how that's not what, what occurs. Um, if you didn't listen to that first podcast, go back and listen to it. Two or three times. To, to, to prove <laughs> that out to yourself. Sure. Uh, more so than we did here. So that's a, that's a false statement. The wind is most important at the target because the bullet's going slowest. That's not true. It's most important at the shooter uh, because it pushes the bullet the whole way to the target when there's wind at the shooter. Mm, partially true, technically false. Uh, because the wind isn't pushing the bullet off course. Right. Now what happens at the shooter continues to have an effect downrange. That part is true. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, it, it's most important at mid at mid-range uh, because that's where the bullet is high enough off, highest off the ground. The max ordinate is around that, you know, in that range. Usually two thirds of the way to your target is around the max ordinate. Okay. Um, but they'll say, uh, well, the, the bullet's high enough off the ground and there's this thing called wind gradient and wind gradient says that the higher off of the surface of an object you get, the higher the flow speed gets. And so when we're talking about the surface being the earth, the the higher up off the earth you get, the higher the wind speed is because there's less things to break it up and resist it. There's the shrubs and the trees that are around yeah. or structures around on the surface of the earth will will slow it down. It'll provide drag to that airflow and slow it down. But when you get way up above that, there's nothing holding that wind back and it's just screaming, right? Okay. So that's what wind gradient is. So they're not wrong in that, but they're not right in it either. That's technically not where the wind is most important. 
to answer that question of where is the wind most important, we have to go back to what we just talked about, which is lag time. Bullets with more lag time will have more wind deflection. It's proportional, right? As yep. lag time goes up, wind deflection goes up. So the answer to that question is it's a combination of lag time and how long the bullet is in the air on the way to the target. So in most cases, most of our long-range applicable cartridges, which is where we're worried about wind, right? Oh, yeah. We're not trying to alienate pistol shooters here or three-gun shooters or carbine shooters or just short-range hunters. But where these phenomena, these external ballistics phenomena, really show themselves is in long-range shooting. So that's why we're using that example. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... So when that bullet comes out of the muzzle and the nose is is already awake because it came out of the muzzle and then it hits the crosswind and it really wakes up, then that bullet nose points into the wind uh, to to find its new relative velocity. The the deflection that is going to occur there, even if the wind stops, let's say the first hundred yards there's wind and then there's no wind from, we'll use a thousand yard shot for an example, there's no wind from from 100 yards to a thousand. That bullet flying, you know, nosed right uh, for that first hundred yards is going, and, and the drag causing it to go to the left a little bit. Once it comes out of that wind section, it's at 101 yards now, it's out of that wind section, it will snap itself back to wherever the relative velocity is, which is now just forward because there's no crosswind acting on the side of it. But it already started moving to the left because of that drag. Just right. because it snaps back forward doesn't mean that goes away. You would, have, you would have to have something there to resist that. You've started it in motion in that direction to the left. It would have to have a motor on the back of it like a kayak. Yeah, come push. back right. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah and it doesn't. Control. It doesn't. Right. It's the kayak without the motor. So that means that it will continue to deflect to the left. It's no longer doing that because of the drag that... The, that is to the left because the bullet nose is right because it's not anymore. It's back to being nose straight because the wind is gone. But it already started moving in that left direction and it will continue to do so. Now, where where it's most important, we'll, we'll say generally speaking, long-range applicable cartridges. So let's go from the hot rod, high BC, 22 cal stuff all the way up to, uh, you know, the the 416 A-tip. Okay, that, yeah, that full spectrum of long range yeah. that lives between there. The the distance to your target dictates the time of flight to the target. So that's your lag time window, right? On a 500-yard shot, let's call it, the wind will be most important at the shooter. And that's because the lag time is the highest early on. That's because the bullet's slowing down at the fastest rate early on. The yeah. higher the velocity is, the faster the bullet will slow down. The faster the bullet slows down, the more lag time there will be. So the wind is most sensitive on that 500-yard shot to wind deflection in the wind right away, the wind at the shooter, the wind at that first chunk, because the lag time is the highest there, because we said it was proportional to lag time. So okay. if, we, if we look at the wind deflection we have at 500 yards, let's say it's 100 inches for easy math, of those 100 inches we observe on target, probably five, you know, 50 or 60 inches of that came from that first 100 yards. So over 50% of what you observed on target came from 20% of the distance the bullet covered. 
Now, if we stretch that range out more, now we're at a thousand yards. Now our lag time window is bigger, mm -hmm. right? And what you'll see is there's a trade-off between shape drag, which we'll get to in the BC and drag coefficient podcast whenever we do that one. But there's a there's a relationship between the velocity that the bullet is traveling at and the and the shape drag. Both of those ultimately give you the velocity decay of the bullet and therefore the lag time. What happens at the thousand yard shot though is that you stretch that staggered importance. So let's go back to 500. We said the first hundred yards were going to be worth 50 to 60 percent. The next hundred yards, 200 to 300, might be worth 30 percent. So now we're at 80 percent of total. Yeah. And then you know you have 20 percent left on those last 300 yards. So to say that a different way, just for the listeners to keep track, we we had a hundred inch, we hit a hundred inches left at hundred at five hundred yards when we took the shot. Of those hundred inches that we hit left, fifty inches or sixty inches of that came from the wind in the first hundred yards. Thirty, the other thirty inches came from the next hundred between two hundred and three hundred, and the last ten inches of deflection came from three hundred to five. When we stretch that to a thousand, we stretch that envelope out. So now it's not 50% important in the first 100 yards, it's 33%. And then the next 100 yards is 27%. And then the next is 20%. So it just stretches that level oh, of importance. Okay. Now when we go from 1,000 to 1,500 yards, stretch it out again. Now what we'll see is where the bullet is approaching the speed of sound, that's where the shape drag is the highest, that's where it will be most sensitive from a lag time perspective of having the most wind deflection but as far as what we observe on target it won't be because that's close you know let's say the bullet would let's say the bullet goes subsonic at 1400 yards our targets at 1500 so it goes subsonic right before we hit our target it's most sensitive to the crosswind from that lag time thing between uh 1100 and 1400 yards right there before it goes subsonic it's super sensitive to the wind but it's also pretty close to the target. Yeah. Remember when, when we said the bullet comes out and it hits that wind and then the wind dies, but the fact that it was already starting to move left means it will continue to do so as it goes down range? That same thing applies here. Although it's more sensitive there, it doesn't have the time to become the biggest contributor. Got so it. what you'll see on that 1,500-yard shot is at the shooter, it's, it's you know maybe single digits importance. It might be like 9%. 8%, you know, somewhere in there. And as you go down range, now when you're approaching like eight, nine hundred, a thousand yards, now that's where the wind is most sensitive. But you've stretched that whole thing out. So it may be that at the muzzle, it's contributing, the first hundred yards, it's contributing 10%. And between 800 and 900, it's contributing 15%. That's more, but it's not substantially more. Right. So on that 1500 yard shot, I have to pay attention to the wind everywhere because it's almost equal yeah. everywhere. The 500-yard shot, I need to pay attention to what the wind is where I am. That has the biggest contribution of where the bullet's going to go. On the 1,000-yarder, still where I am, but maybe the first third. So so to answer that question, where is the wind most important, you have to understand that lag time. Thing. Yeah, depends uh, on how far you're shooting. Yeah. Now I'm going to throw another another example in there that that's probably, it, it will help our, it'll help nail it in, but it's going to feel weird doing it here this is not going to make much sense but okay until the end until the end and then it'll be crystal clear yeah uh let's take a a, a 65 bullet a 140 we'll say an eldm and we're shooting at 2700 feet a second it's a standard out of a 24 inch creedmoor yep 
at one second time of flight, we're going to look at this from a time standpoint, not distance. We're always looking at things from a distance standpoint because that's what matters to us behind a rifle. What matters in ballistics is time. Going back to the use of a Doppler radar. Yeah. Trying to measure the time. Yeah. Who would have, who would have thought? <laughs> just, just got a clock here. It's dang clocks. Uh, so, so at a one second time of flight, that Creedmoor with a 140 yield EM doing 2,700 feet per second is going to have uh, 28 inches of wind deflection. And at one second, that happens to be 744 yards in this example. Okay. Now let's take that same bullet, that 65140, and shoot it at 1,000 foot per second, way slower. Do you think it's going to have more or less wind deflection at one second time of flight? Yeah, you would think it'd be way more. You would think so. But if we think about lag time, which is how it works, right? When a bullet goes subsonic, the drag drops way off. Right. It's, it's not zero, but it's as close as you're going to get. And that's because the bullet is not traveling faster than the speed of sound. It's not breaking the sound barrier and therefore forming shock waves. That takes a lot of energy out of the bullet, the, the f- breaking the speed of sound. You lose a lot. That's why velocity loss is, is worse the faster it goes. Okay? Okay. When the bullet goes subsonic, it's not breaking the speed of sound anymore. There's no more shock waves, so the, the drag is dramatically reduced. Well, if the drag is reduced, the lag time is reduced. What happens if lag time gets reduced to wind deflection? You have less. You have less. So if we take that 6'5", 140 grain, same bullet we were shooting at 2,700 feet a second when we had 28 inches of wind deflection at a one-second time of flight. We take that bullet and we shoot it at 1,000 feet per second in the same environment. At one second time of flight, that bullet has eight inches of wind deflection. Wow. Big difference, right? Huge difference. Huge difference. Now, from our perspective as the shooter, if we look at it from a range standpoint, with, 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 that, uh, with that thousand foot per second example, that's only 317 yards downrange in, okay. in the numbers so that I ran before. Definitely this. a trade-off. So that's, you know, if we look at the Creedmoor, uh, it doesn't hit eight inch, the, the full, you know, the 2,700 feet per second one, it hits eight inches of wind deflection at 417 yards. So that's still further downrange than that yeah. subsonic one. The subsonic one was at 317 when it hit eight inches of wind deflection. But when you look at it from a time perspective, which is what matters in ballistics, they're both, they both were in the air for 1.0 seconds. Yep. That Creedmoor going 2,700 deflected 28 inches when it hit the one second mark. That subsonic load was at eight inches. That's pretty remarkable. So that proves to you the, the, the lag time correlation to it, okay? And that's because you can think of lag time as far as like more or less lag time, back to kind of that kayak thing, as how much drag that thing is going to have. The more lag time it has, the more drag, because the drag is causing the lag time. So if there's more lag time, there's, there's more, more drag. drag. What we said was when the bullet nose pointed to the right, the drag is now happening to the rear and left. Well, if you have more rear and left, you have more left, right? Than yep. you do if there's less. So the fact that a the fact that the the lag time is worse means that the drag is worse because that's what causes the lag time to be worse. That means you will have more drag to the left, more wind deflection to the left. So hopefully that kind of helps that that last little example there. I know it following the bouncing ball here to the point of going cross-eyed yeah. But I think that's really important. A, in answering where is the wind most important, to, you have to understand how it works and, and what it's a function of to really answer that question. And for shooters or listeners out there, um, you know, I gave you some generic examples today of where the wind is most important. It, it's a function of d- 
different things, you know, um, really depends on what you're shooting, what the environment, it depends on the lag time, but that's influenced by, you know, what you're shooting for a bullet, how fast you're shooting it, what the environment is, what the distance to the target is. But as far as putting those age old arguments to bed over, it's most important at the target. It's yeah. most important at the shooter. Um, no, you know, it, it changes. It, it's not the same. That's pretty, that's pretty wild. That's going to stand a few people on their heads. And like you mentioned, make a few people go cross-eyed there. Yeah. Having to listen to this and the previous external ballistics podcast, uh, to get the full picture. Um, but that's something you don't find just posted anywhere on the internet. You can't go onto the forums and find information like that. Yeah. That took a long time to generate using, coming up with those analogies because it's tough to find an analogy that works because we can't see the bullet. Mm-hmm. You know, if we could see the bullet, this would be super easy to understand, but you just, you just can't see the thing. It's going too fast. Right. Um, so the, you know, really concentrate on that rocket analogy. I mean, that's, that's what's going, the bullet is an op, is the opposite of a rocket. A rocket is accelerating. A bullet's doing the opposite. So if you can go and see and visualize what a rocket is doing, the bullet does the opposite of that. And, and obviously rockets are different. They're fin stabilized. Uh, they're not spin stabilized like a bullet is. There's sure. some technical differences there, but as far as that goes, I think that will help people paint a picture of how it works. Yeah, I think so too. I think that uh, uh, being a a disciple of uh, ballistics and and studying and learning and working in that field, uh, I've yet to find an example that that so in depth but also so eloquently laid out how wind deflection actually works. Mm-hmm. And then when you zoom out from the weeds of wind deflection, and then you start stacking stuff together, wind deflection, spin drift, aerodynamic jump. I mean, you start stacking things together and it's a wonder we hit anything when we go shoot. Yeah. It's, and this will lead into, you know, when we have the topic or the discussions about the, the ballistic solvers that are out there, I mean, this is, this is super complex stuff, right? Mm. And and the calculator used to generate the solution, if it can't handle all those complex things going on, because it's super complex. I mean, we're describing each of these things segregated from each other to try to understand them, but they're all going on at once. They all influence each other. Um, we, we haven't even touched on Magnus and what that does to dynamic instability and stuff like that. I don't know if you want to go into that on this one or not, but um, there's just so much stuff going on that the complexity of the calculations that need to occur to make the output correct, uh, it, there's a big distinction. And we'll obviously cover that when, when the time comes on the ballistic solver stuff. All right. So that's wind deflection. Now, there's a couple of other things that act on the bullet. And we're talking way downrange. And we probably don't have to get as deep in the weeds as we did when we were talking about wind. By we, I mean you. Um, but... Uh, Magnus effect is one that gets brought up and the, the heavily romanticized Oriola. So sure. if you've got the, the mental steam left and it hasn't been purged out of the, out of the valve, <laughs> let's talk Magnus effect here. Okay. So, so Magnus, uh, again, there's, there's good examples out there on the internet that you can see the, the, I think the common ones are like a baseball, like a, a curveball thrown by a pitcher in baseball. Uh, exhibits the Magnus effect or like uh, it, mainly with like sports balls, right? That's kind of yeah. how it's conveyed. The, the, the bullet's very similar to that. So essentially you, you have a rotating object, uh, in this case, the bullet. And what happens is I talked a little bit earlier about the boundary layer of air that kind of prevented the rifling from slowing the spin rate down really very much. Mm-hmm. Um, that 
that boundary layer of air, uh, as the bullet's being pulled down due to gravity, uh, you're going to have more pressure on the bottom of the bullet than the top of the bullet. Yep, we talked uh, about that. Yep, and that that air, that boundary layer of air, boundary layer of air that's you could think of it as attached to it, kind of. Um, is going to come around on a right-hand twist bullet, and it's going to kind of crash into that higher-pressure air uh, down at the bottom of the bullet because it's falling down through the air because of gravity. That's what causes Magnus to occur. Now, Magnus is, again, it's super hard to see, um, but essentially, Magnus is like, a, it's its own it's its own thing. So we talked about center of gravity and center of pressure earlier. Um, Magnus has its own center of pressure, and it's behind the center of gravity. Okay. So when when Magnus starts to occur, that means that the bullet is falling down through gravity, and it has to have an angle of attack for this to occur. So it has to the nose can't be perfectly pointed down because then you don't have any. There's no more pressure on the bottom. The pressure is equal around the bullet if the nose is perfectly following the trajectory. Okay. As it arcs over, due which to we gravity, know never right? happens. No, it, it's. Small amounts that it doesn't, imperceivably small, but it's there. The nose is slightly up because of the gyroscopic stability factor resisting it wanting to nose over. Um, there's some great videos out there going on a small tangent on the gyroscopic stability thing. And I remember doing this, I think, in grade school where it had like a bicycle wheel with two handles on it and you would spin the wheel and you know you could just sit there and, and hold it out, you know, like on a finger, right? Like you could put your finger out and have the handle that's mounted to the sides of the bicycle wheel in the center. You could just have the, have the handle set on the top of a single finger, holding it horizontal to the floor. And that bicycle wheel will sit there stable and it won't fall to the floor. If you stop it from spinning, obviously it falls right to the floor. Yep. So, so the fact that the, the trajectory is curving, that resistance that the bicycle wheel has to falling off your finger is the same thing that the bullet has. It's not nosing over because it's the bicycle wheel, right? It has a rigid stability axis due to the spin, and so its nose is slightly up. And that falling due to gravity, now Magnus is slightly different than spin drift. That was a different thing. That's caused by normal force. But it's also caused because the bullet is nosed up in its orientation. The Magnus is caused by that airflow, uh, boundary layer of air coming in and crashing into the higher pressure of air that's on the bottom of the bullet than the top. The Magnus force center pressure is behind the center of gravity, and when when it starts, when the Magnus force starts to have an effect, it's essentially pushing through that Magnus center pressure, which is behind, behind the center, the of, center gravity. of gravity. Okay. Well, on most bullets, especially long range style bullets. The center of gravity is pretty far back. It's definitely farther back than halfway. And that's because there's lead in the boat tail, there's lead in the bearing surface, and there's lead most of the way up the ogive, but not all the way. Um, if you're talking about a boat tail hollow point design, an ELD match, an ELDX, an A-tip, there's air underneath that uh, last little bit of copper. And so what that does is it causes the center of gravity to move to the rear. So being that the center of pressure is even behind that, if you're looking at a modern long-range bullet, you could think of maybe the center of pressure being at the boat tail bearing surface junction, the Magnus center of pressure. So that's where the bullet's going to get pushed on. Okay. So being that it's behind it, and there's way more bullet in front of the center of gravity than there is behind the center of gravity, just a little bit of a push back there on the back of that bullet, and you can do this on your table, right? Set a component bullet down on the table, and uh, and 
and kind of hold it or, or pin it just a little bit back from center on the bearing surface, probably an approximation of the center of gravity, but then take your finger and just push just a little bit on the boat tail bearing surface junction. Watch how far that nose moves. Yeah. So with a little bit of movement in the back, the nose is just going Very all dramatic. over. And so what that Magnus causes is dynamic instability. So we defined in that first podcast uh, that uh, gyroscopic stability is the bullet is flying with a point forward orientation. Dynamic stability is whatever angle it's flying at, or or uh, yaw cycle, or, or angle of attack, however you want to define it. Uh, whatever that angle is, if it's dynamically stable, it's staying the same or getting smaller. If it's dynamically unstable, it's waking up, it's getting worse. Okay. So what happens when Magnus starts to kick in, and this is when you know, a bullet's really starting to fall due to gravity, and it, it's gaining a higher and higher angle of attack, the nose starts to dramatically wake up, and and that's what you, when we talked a little bit last time about transonic instability, transonic instability is caused by Magnus. Okay. And so that's when you see, when the bullet nose wakes up, the problem is that you, when you do have those bullets, which I talked about that are more rare than people think that have dynamic instability, when you do have one of those and it goes dynamically unstable due to Magnus, the problem with it is the problem with it is the the point of impacts become erratic and variable, right? You miss high, you miss low, you miss over here, over there, right? The reason that it's erratic is all the way back to the start of our kind of study here when the bullet comes out of the muzzle. If you knew what orientation its nose was pointed when it came out the barrel, you could predict where it went, whether it was high, low, left, right, or any variance of those in between. The problem with Magnus is that you don't know where the bullet nose is when Magnus kicks in and which direction it causes the nose to go first when it wakes up. Okay. That influences the direction it ends up going. Because it's going to spend more time as it's spinning around its axis pointed in that direction. It's a, it's a jump. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. You could think of it the same way, right? Any, any angle of attack that the, that the bullet has, a jump can be associated with that. Okay. And so that's why it goes random from your perspective of like a point of impact on target. So Magnus is there. Um, there's things there's things that can be done to limit Magnus. One of those big ones is the bullet design itself. How you lay the mass out within the bullet is uh, is key. The shape of the bullet is pretty key. Um, twist rate can have a pretty big impact on it uh, with certain bullet designs. So n- neither one of those uh, are are fully like the answer by themselves. They all work in tandem together. So there's some bullets that if you spin them faster, they will have a better chance at resisting Magnus or having having better pitch damping characteristics. So any pitching motion or, or movement of the bullet's nose uh, is damped out. Okay. They can get better with twist rate, but that's not a guarantee. And it doesn't mean it's going to do it with every bullet. And again, there's trade-offs to going to a faster twist rate, right? Terminal performance can get worse uh, if you're using a non-traditional expanding style bullet like we described earlier. Spin drift will get worse, <clears throat> more in magnitude. Not that that's crazy concern because it's consistent aerodynamic jump values will change um but your dispersion level back to that out of balance tire thing the faster you spin it the worse the worse the wobble gets so uh there's nothing for free out there um but yeah that that would be a you know a quick overview of kind of what magnus is kind of what causes it um and and what the the results of that are without going like crazy deep because with magnus is hard because it's non-linear Oh. And so it's hard to convey with an analogy because it it's just like a crazy person. 
Like yeah. you don't know what they're going to do. You know, like they take one step this way and then they do a cartwheel and a backflip going that way. You know, yeah. like you just don't know. So that's Magnus. Awesome. And really can't be predicted then. It, it can, if you know, so you, the, I guess there would be two, two ways to answer that question from a prediction standpoint. The first would be, can you predict the average nose pattern that it's going to wake up to because of Magnus? Yes. The Ford off does that. Okay. Can you predict where it will go from a point of impact standpoint? Not without knowing exactly what orientation from a clock perspective, looking at the back of the bullet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bullet nose was, you know, a little bit to the right and a little bit up. It, the nose was pointed at two o'clock once Magnus started to kick in and that woke it up in this direction, whatever it is. That's really hard to know without knowing those orientations okay. so like a six doff uh, six degrees of freedom solver can kind of do that because um, it all it all is based on it's predicting everything from the start so if you feed it the correct information for muzzle exit orientation um, and the uh, rates the the pitch and yaw rates that it would have then yes it can tell you that at this range the nose is at this pitch and this yaw i'm going to venture out to say there's no calculators like that commercially available there, well, there's the Lapua six-off program, um, okay. which is, in my opinion, a little bit of a misnomer because uh, to have a six-off program, you have to feed it a a pitch and a yaw orientation or or um, frequency. The problem is you don't know that as the user. So if you take the pitch and the yaw planes and you average them into an angle of attack, you get Hornady Ford off. Yeah. So that the you know uh, that six-off program is great. It it matches exactly with the Hornady Ford off program. Um, they're limited in their bullets. I think they only support Lapua bullets on there, which we support Lapua bullets as well in ours. And yeah. I've ran those two side by side and they spit out the exact same numbers. So it's like, okay, yeah, the math, the math's the same, right? I mean, it's yeah. the equations of motion. Can't um, argue with, yeah, physics, no. hard to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good app, great calculator. Um, I think it, the, the name six, yeah, six offs off, off by a little bit in my okay. opinion, but, but so a true six off calculator, the user would have no way to supply the data needed to make it an accurate calculation. Right. right. Yeah. Until, I don't know if we'll ever hit a point where we can do that or not. Like from a user level, yeah. right? Like we can do stuff here study wise, um, either with high speed cameras or with yaw card analysis where you can, you can sort of measure that stuff and figure out what to input. Um, but for the. For the yep. average consumer, ah, no, a little bit too much workload yeah. for the benefit you get. So yeah, Magnus is talked about quite a bit. You hear, it especially you know, at, with the, with the ELR crowd, which uh-huh. is obviously where this is happening out. And then I mentioned earlier and in the last podcast, but it truly is one of one of the more romanticized things about shooting stuff far away is oh, the spin of the earth. And oh this yeah, is, yeah, it's being yeah, Ricky Recon out there shooting <laughs> stuff far away. So we we do need to address. Uh, Coriolis uh, in an external ballistics podcast, yeah, and uh, talk about its you know, how it works and where it's applicable. Okay, so so like within the Fordoff calculator, we we call it Earth based effects, um, and and that's because there's a couple different things going on. Coriolis is one of them. Um, the Otvos effect is another one. The curved Earth is another one that, but I mean, mainly they're effective for like artillery stuff. Um, we include them cause they, they, they do have small contributions to the point of impact, but they're, they're very small. So At, I mean, extreme ranges, Yes, like thousands of yards. Yeah. So Coriolis is, is caused by the rotation of the earth and 
essentially what it is is if you're firing north or south um the earth is an ellipsoid i think it's described as it's not a sphere right it's kind of fat in the middle because the spin causes the earth to bulge outward um at the equator so if you fire north or south what that means is from a latitude perspective which is you know your position on earth north or south uh, if you're firing north um, you're at a certain latitude where you are and there's a certain circumference of the earth at that latitude and then if you're firing north your target is a as is at a further north latitude and the circumference of the earth will be smaller there and so if the earth rotates at a constant rate but you have two different circumferences then the rotational velocity of those two is different uh. so it's the it's the bicycle you have the big sprocket up front and the little sprocket in the back and when you spin that you know front sprocket at constant speed the back one spins faster kind of the same analogy yep. so what happens is that um uh the the target which is further north of you and at a smaller circumference latitude of the earth it's moving at a more rapid rate than you are so the target is moving faster than you are to the to the right um opposite is true if you shoot to the south same exact circumstance you're shooting yep. from a uh, more latitude this would be from the equator uh, as well so to not confuse the shooter uh, you're shooting from the equator you know if you go up into the northern hemisphere say here in nebraska you know and you shoot to the south uh you're going to be shooting from a smaller circumference of the earth to a bigger circumference of the earth where your target is okay so that's what the coriolis, coriolis is. is and to zoom out from that a little bit you got to be shooting a long damn way yeah you're talking you're, about when you're talking about circum uh the the circumference being a different diameter yeah because the earth's really tall <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> and, and, and as much as we'd like to romanticize about how far away we can hit a target yeah. in relation to the height of the earth it's nothing yeah you know it's, okay. it's a tiny amount so coriolis north and south yeah you're talking you're talking inches beyond a thousand beyond two thousand i mean it's really not much i mean uh, uh like a tenth of a mile an hour error in crosswind measurement blows the coriolis effect out of the water yeah, as far as the north south completely side. hidden okay yeah. now east west firing um so there's this thing called the Iotvos uh principle maybe i'm not sure the technical term of it but um so from what i remember that they were taking measurements of the weight of cargo on ships hmm. that were traveling you know across the ocean say from america to europe or whatever um and they would get different measurements when they uh, traveled east than when they traveled west on, on opposite headings, right? Heading on a 90-degree heading and then a 270-degree heading. The exact same cargo would weigh, with a scale, a different weight, which is pretty strange. And that's, uh, that's the same thing that's happening when you're firing east and west with a bullet. So essentially, you're firing with the direction of rotation of the Earth, or you're firing against the rotation of the direction of the Earth. And there's... a uh, you could think of it as like an acceleration in alignment with the rotation of the earth or against it and so you'll see this like with with nasa when they launch a rocket <clears throat> into space or whoever's launching rockets these days um they do it in a direction where they're in alignment with the rotation of the earth because that helps get them out yeah, into orbit take advantage easier. of it yep okay so when you shoot uh you shoot to the east you'll hit a little bit high and when you turn around and shoot west you'll hit a little bit low and that's what that's caused by now that's you know 
that's a little bit more meaningful than the north the north south stuff is. Yeah, uh, you're talking a couple inches at a thousand, say with a Creedmoor. Um, obviously, depending on where you are, um, but that would be kind of what that is. And then you have curved earth, uh, which is the oh boy, we're gonna we're gonna light up some controversy, or at least the I hear earth these days is curved. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, you okay. heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> so, so with a with a curved a uh, curved earth. Uh, it's essentially an issue of, you know, that your your target can be below or above with the rotation, the time of flight in the air, um, that you're, it's not on the same fixed plane as you. Now, us in small arms, yeah, it is, okay? Yeah. You're using a line of sight optic. Um, by definition, that's a straight line. So, uh, really, the curved earth stuff has no meaningful effect on small cal uh, stuff that we're doing with a line of sight optic. In the artillery world, your indirect fire, yeah, absolutely. But that would kind of summarize that in yeah. a in So there's a digestible three way, things working all at once. So uh, j- just for what most people lump into Coriolis or what we lump into earth-based effect, you have, unless you're shooting, shooting in a true cardinal direction, mm-hmm. then you have a little bit of, of both. Of both. And uh, that's important to note. And again, important to note that, I mean, we're talking not much uh, inside of 1,000 or 1,500 yards. Yeah. Um, and certainly wind being grossly more important um than accounting for coriolis obviously if you could if you have something that you can control go ahead and control it but uh it makes me wonder what uh you know bc calculators are doing out there to account for this as well and and what they're doing if they're accounting for the eobos effect and the coriolis and the curved earth or how they're doing that'll be interesting to hear yeah your your uh perspective on that uh later podcast yeah and and don't get me wrong they sh- they they exist and they should be accounted for these things we just talked about although they're small small things really matter um especially at, at extremely long ranges because what that does is take the patterning that you're shooting in it and it biases it in a certain direction and from a hit probability standpoint that can have a major yeah. effect so um it it should certainly be accounted for and especially in the elr game you know yeah, these guys Mile and a half, two miles, two point yeah, four miles. Yeah, yeah certainly it, it it becomes a contributing factor at those distances. Still, in comparison or relative to wind deflection or raw dispersion, you know, what kind of group sizes your gun shoots, or velocity variation, or drag variation, or drag error because of the program that you're using, causing time of flight calculations to be wrong. All that stuff really eclipses it, in my opinion. But it's yeah. still a contributing factor, and it should be acknowledged and accounted for. Awesome. Well, that was a hell of a study over external ballistics. Took two episodes, really in depth. Did we miss anything? I think the only thing maybe would be a quick description on like atmospheric conditions, temperature, pressure, yeah. stuff like that. Well, let's zoom out a little bit and come out of the weeds and yeah, okay. talk about something that we, I think, as the general population of shooters all understand, which is you're shooting in an atmosphere. That atmosphere has parts to it so yeah okay let's talk about that so we talked about it a little bit earlier on about uh you know as you get colder in temperature uh causes the air density um uh, more more air density it becomes more dense the temperature plays a dual role in ballistics and we'll probably get into this more later on another subject probably on the ballistic calculator one because it it plays into uh, air density versus uh versus temperature's contribution to Mach number and therefore bullet drag. But generally speaking, colder temperatures result in uh, more dense air, 
lower elevations, like we said, because the atmosphere is sitting on top of you, result in more dense air. So um, you're, you know, at, at sea level conditions, when it's cold outside, you're going to experience more bullet drop because the time of flight is extended. The bullet, the air is thicker. It takes the bullet more time to get to the same range, thousand yards. Time is longer. Gravity has more time to act on it. Bullet drop is going to be more. Um, the opposite of that is true. So go up to the mountains in one of the western states, um, and it's a warm summer day, so it's hot and high elevation. Um, that would reduce the air density, and so your bullet will hit higher in that example. Now, temperature in its second role, that was temperature's role in its contribution to air density, which is one. Um, but its second role is its contribution to um, Mach number which Mach number is the speed of sound. And we talked a little bit about in this podcast how a bullet that's traveling faster than the speed of sound, it's it's creating supersonic shockwaves around it, Yep. sometimes attached to it. Um, temperature is a big player in that. And so what can happen is as temperature changes, your bullet drag has to change because as temperature changes, the speed of sound changes. As the speed of sound changes, your drag changes. So we go all the way back to the beginning. It's all about... Uh, the time well if our drag changes that changes how fast our bullet slows down and, and changes to that change the amount of time it spends in the air which affects all the stuff that we've talked about up to this point wow yeah that's okay so that's obviously vitally important and we probably could have covered that maybe in the first podcast at, at the beginning but um, we'll hammer on that one when we do the um, bc and drag coefficient and kind of go in depth on bullet drag We'll, we'll talk about temperature a lot during that. Awesome. Well, did we miss anything else? I don't think so. I, I hope uh, I hope this was a effective one, especially considering the first one. We kind of we kind of went round and round with some stuff, but yeah. I think especially like with the comments, you know, thank you to those that are leaving comments. It's great to get the feedback. Absolutely. Um, you know, hopefully it answered some of that. I know there was some comments about you know, hey, what about barrel harmonics and stuff like that from the Internal Ballistics podcast? We should probably do in a. a version two kind of like this one for external for the internal because sure. there is some stuff definitely to talk about there you know so um no, i think we covered it well we'll, we'll know uh give, yeah. us, give us your feedback if you have questions let us know uh if any of those analogies were not effective hey we'll give it <laughs> we'll another go again. we'll get some yeah. more kayaks and stuff or something yeah well yeah that's a good point that uh yeah let us know your feedback we've been getting a ton of it obviously you can just drop a comment if you're watching this on youtube uh, if you want to reach out to us directly it's podcast at hornady.com um, you could reach out to us that way. Let us know your suggestions, if you got topic suggestions, or just feedback about you know what we talked about on the episode. Uh, we'd love to hear from you because this is a work in progress of a podcast. We're just trying to figure out what people want to listen to, and I have to say the resounding response on the external ballistics and the internal ballistics podcast has just been phenomenal. People have Good. really been enjoying it, and I'm excited to continue this ballistic study. However, we're gonna have to continue it on another day because I need a nap, uh, uncross my eyes. Uh, get another new notepad here to take more notes. Uh, it's incredibly dense, but it's super interesting. And I think this is the kind of stuff that, that the passionate long-range guys are, this is the information they're looking for. Well, in the great words of Chris Farley, that's enough for today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Jaden. I appreciate it. Everybody else out there, thanks for sticking around with us. Thanks for listening in. We know this is incredibly deep. We know it's uh, sometimes dry. We know it's sometimes hard to understand, but... A uh, lot of good information out here. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll catch you on the next one.